1: as moderator for tonight's
0: broadcast.
1: I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. The article I'm about to read is called Waking Up to Reality. It was published in City Journal and it is by my guest, Razib Khan. We recorded on Wednesday night, April 15th, and I'm just kind of marking that down so that you know where in the whole timeline of coronavirus and everything else we are. So had I been asked in late 2019 what would eventually break American global dominance, I'd have said the rise of China. Projections indicated that by 2030 or so, China would overtake the United States as the world's largest economy. When was the last time the U.S. had not been the largest economy? According to the late economic historian, Angus Madison, it was about 1880. And what nation was the largest economy in that year? China. My thinking pre-pandemic was that the psychic shock of America's eventual demotion might trigger cultural and political turmoil, as the nation would find itself forced into a reckoning. Then came 2020. The true shock to our civilization has come not from our own self-image, but from nature itself. Western elites were clearly not prepared for this turn a shattering of our conceit that reality is ours to create. In the U.S., bickering about an appropriate official name for COVID-19, along with a sequence of bureaucratic blunders that led to dire shortages of diagnostic testing and medical gear, highlight the core competencies of today's media and governmental elites, administrative turf wars and verbal jousting to burnish status and positional games. Even in this high-stakes moment, they cannot abandon unproductive old reflexes. In a strange turn of events, 21st century American elites turn out to resemble the Chinese mandarins of yore, absorbed in intricate intrigues at court to advance their careers while European gunboats prowl the waterways. The politicians who govern us and the media who tell us how the world really is acted as if the basics of economic well-being would be an everlasting bounty. Economists, those apex predators of social science, marshaled the evidence for efficiencies and gains in productivity due to trade and international supply chains. Just-in-time inventories reduced waste and made modern retail a lean, mean prosperity machine. Plenitude wasn't some miracle achieved through hard work and focused attention. It was our birthright, a steady state condition of the universe we inhabited. A global pandemic wasted no time in making a mockery of many of these late 20th century assumptions. All our efficiencies melted away in the face of a man-made depression. Perhaps the world was never what we presumed it to be. In January, empirical evidence from Wuhan should have caused alarm for anyone who bothered to look closely. Epidemiological frameworks are some of the most well understood theoretical systems in population biology. So the high average number of secondary cases was immediately worrisome to science, Scientists, statisticians, and physicians. The WHO, the CDC, and independent observers hoped that COVID nineteen would be slowed by the same factors that slowed and contained SARS and MERS in the past, but there was no guarantee. By late January, a small but vocal group of epidemiologists and infectious disease specialists, along with an eclectic array of Silicon Valley figures, had begun raising the alarm. But these worries failed to gain broader traction in the U.S. media and political landscape for much of February. The media seemed more anxious about the possibility of anti-Asian racism than the threat of deadly pandemic. Scenes that played out in Wuhan were repeated with eerily specific similarity in Lombardy in March and then in New York shortly thereafter. Despite the reality that we live in a world where China's economic and geopolitical heft looms large, American elites nursing a 20th century hangover haven't updated their understanding of the world. China may be remote, alien, and exotic, but it was too easy to dismiss the COVID-19 outbreak in Wuhan as sui generis. In a global age, we have become too parochial as a nation, held captive by our own particular history. Too many of our elites lack the most basic analytical tools to understand the threats that we face from nature. The acerbic commentator Nassim Nicholas Taleb, however, saw the possibility of disaster from COVID-19 early on. He is notably a quantitative and formal thinker versed in statistical distributions and exponential growth. By contrast, in early March, MSNBC's Brian Williams former anchor at NBC Nightly News, and Mara Gay, a member of the New York Times editorial board, were unable to divide $500 million, the figure that Michael Bloomberg had squandered on campaign advertising, by $327 million, the number of Americans. Repeating an enumerate tweet with wonderment, they asserted that the equation came out to $1 million per American. The actual sum would have been $1.53 each. Lacking the ability to perform elementary school arithmetic, how could such media figures grasp what exponential growth entails? Meantime, esoteric forms of intellectual exercise that prioritize human subjectivity and the power of social construction have marched through academic institutions and metastasized into public spaces. Thinkers like Judith Butler of UC Berkeley, who argues that gender is a performance intelligible only in a social matrix, come to shape elite discourse more with every passing year. They would have us believe that the shape of the world is purely a function of our wills and that reality can be bent to our ideology without limitation. Now COVID-19 has thrust the untamed physical world back into our line of vision. It has brought post-materialist 21st century humanity face to face with one of the species deepest and most atavistic fears, pestilence and plague. The disease will not be defined away. It is not a social construction or interpretation. It is immune to critique or public shaming on social media. COVID-19 will not be, quote-unquote, canceled. This spring, even residents of the most stable societies are reminded that we're at times little different from our medieval ancestors, trapped in an unpredictable world. And yet over the past two decades, the field of genomics has emerged in biology. Astonishingly powerful computing has grown ubiquitous through outdeveloped and developing societies and a demographic transition in the Middle East, along with Western counterattacks has diminished the threat of Islamic terrorism. Humanity has racked up epochal successes, but generally the American system hasn't been forward looking. It has remained reactive for decades. Scientists and thinkers have warned that our 20th century victories against infectious disease could merely be a pause. COVID-19 has brought this prophecy to life. Rather than attend to internecine arguments about the ideal marginal tax rate or the gendered nature of the English language, we need to face outward and confront a real foe. The American elite must stop treating science like inscrutable magic that provides its bounty automatically. Science and engineering are instruments that grant us insight and mastery only through massive investments of time, energy, and will. We must acknowledge the importance of mastering reality if we are to survive and flourish as a civilization. Otherwise, governing and media elite's lack of basic scientific and statistical literacy will doom us to fly blind in the face of future natural disasters. Our only hope is to turn our backs on an era where our only leaders are business executives and lawyers. Data journalism cannot remain a niche. It deserves to occupy a prominent spot on any editorial board. Scientists and engineers must step outside of their laboratories and make their voices heard in the halls of power. They must become part of the establishment that they once had the luxury of viewing chiefly as a source of funding and institutional support. Earlier generations feared a nuclear holocaust. The atomic age was an ever-present reminder of nature's menace. Between 1990 and 2020, an American generation has matured for whom the only threats were man-made or unimaginably distant. COVID-19 dispenses with our sophistry and low-information navel-gazing. The question for our society now is whether we're ready to dispense with them too. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to Be Reasonable. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. I am talking tonight to Razib Khan. I read an article that he wrote in the City Journal in the past week uh, called Waking Up to Reality. And I was absolutely floored by it. And uh, so I followed him on Twitter. I hit him up on Twitter. And I am... Very happy to have him here tonight. I've been trying to get him on for a week. He is a geneticist, and he has written for National Review, New York Times, City Journal. As I said, he's the host of two podcasts, uh, Insights and Brown Pundits. And then he has the Brown Pundits blog. And tell me the website address on the genetics one. .com, Gene Expression. Cool. Awesome. All right. So we were talking about, we we talked a few days ago, and then we ended up talking tonight. Uh, I responded to a Sarah Hader post. She was commenting on this commercial that kind of dropped on the internet today, but apparently, I mean. It's been around a while. Yeah, yeah. It didn't look like I've, it was brand I've new I've seen it anything. before. Okay. So it was a commercial from China where for laundry products, right? Mm-hmm. And they literally had a black man jump into the washing machine and come out white. Or not white, sorry. Come out Chinese. Light right? skinned, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's fucking crazy.
2: Yeah, I mean. For I mean, you. I- yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually a little
1: um, curious why you would say it's crazy, though, because I, I that wasn't surprising to me at all. Because it is so out of context for anything that we think of as normal American commercial fare.
2: hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. But I mean, you know, other cultures have other like contexts and norms and things that you would find offensive. They wouldn't and vice versa. And so I guess, um, you know, my family's from Bangladesh, I mm-hmm. know what, how different Asian cultures are, and they don't have the um, particular sensitivities about race that Americans have, mm-hmm. they have sensitivities about other things, and um, American sensitivities with the black-white experience in this country are very particular, very heightened, and, um, you know, they're, we are next level about that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, no, even Europeans, I mean, not even, I mean, Europeans can be quite racist, actually. I mean, do you know about, uh, was it like, a uh, Black Pete? No. Uh, the Dutch, he, he was like, he's basically this, uh, blackface character that they have in parades in the Netherlands. Jesus. Um, and he used to be a slave. He was like, uh, Father Christmas or Claus's slave helper for this little, little black guy. Yeah, and so it's a big thing because, you know, um, Sometimes black Americans settle in the Netherlands, are like, What the heck? What is this? And the Dutch people are like, And they're very liberal and, you know, progressive, supposedly. They're mm-hmm. all high, but, um, they're just like, Well, this is just <laughs> part of our culture. And why are you offended? And, you know, they'll be like, Well, slavery. And then they'll say, Well, we didn't have slaves in the Netherlands, even though the Netherlands was actually a pretty brutal regime in South Africa. Um, with slavery and in Indonesia, um, what is today Indonesia. So it's it's kind of BS. But um, anyway, I'm just bringing up a different example that um, America in particular, and this is actually, I didn't talk about it in City Journal because I'm trying to write something for National Review that's mm-hmm. more about America and its weird myopia um, when it comes to the world stage where we just think our norms sometimes are everybody else's because we're the best and we're the biggest right. and, and all that stuff. And so um, part of this I would say that. activities The other half is the Chinese are racist. Yeah. You know, um, so China and- has a very, very, very straightforward racial hierarchy where they kind of respect white people because white people beat them. And then below them, uh, below white people and Chinese people are, you know, the darker skinned people in Asia, South Asians, Southeast Asians, um, maybe Middle Eastern people who they view as kind of overly emotional and religious, you know, and violent. And then at the bottom, there are black people, you know, Africans. And so um, this is, most people know this. And, um, you know, Chinese, they still operate in a frame of social Darwinism um, that would seem quite bizarre to Americans, you know. Um, And so... Yeah, I, I don't think it was surprising at all. I mean, it wasn't surprising to me. It
1: wasn't surprising to me either, and that's what yeah. I had commented on her post: yeah. is that like I have a friend who lives in China, and she has told me before about how there are separate spaces in the women's gym for white women, and mm-hmm. I was like, "Wow, that is well." Crazy. I mean, so here's the here's the issue, though, Chris. Mm-hmm.
2: Karen's can be quite annoying. No, I'm just joking. <laughs>
1: I'll I'll agree with you there.
2: They're like, can I talk to your manager? <laughs> I was just like, Let's just give them their own space.
1: <laughs> Sorry, the manager does no. not understand you, baby. No. <laughs> um so so and then you responded telling me like what the actual reasoning mm-hmm. was for that, which is I said I don't know how to feel about that, but please tell me because my mind mm. is utterly blown on this. Well, so uh, the reason that I gave you, which was
2: it's, it's pretty strange, but um, it is it is a thing, is that East Asians routinely complain that people of European and African heritage smell bad, uh, body odor, very strong body odor, and um, the reason. Um, so, one of the standard reasons—well, um, I mean, the reason people will give is like, "Oh, these people are dirty." But if you read anything about any culture, you'll notice that they think other cultures are dirty, but they themselves are not. So, I mean, this this can't logically—that's an in-group, out-group thing. Yeah, that's an yeah. in-group, out-group thing. So, but but you know, people have noticed this smell issue um, early on when the Europeans encountered um, the Japanese, the Chinese. Um, there was a comment about the strong smell. Now, one reason this could be true is like um, Europeans didn't bathe back then. You know, they sure. would would like, you know, their wool clothes, they would like shake them and get mm-hmm. the dirt out of them. They didn't bathe, so maybe they were stinky. But it turns out um, that there's actually a difference. Um, And the article that I linked to you on my blog is about deodorant. Deodorant, the Chinese don't buy deodorant. A lot of them don't. And one of the reasons is their body odor levels are probably just biologically not as strong. Um, There's a genetic variant that's a... Basically, it is um, involved in the development of things related to sweat ducts in your body. Mm -hmm. Okay? I think, and I, and I don't want to get into like all the details, but one of the other consequences is if you have dry, flaky earwax, um, that is caused by this variant that's really common in East Asia. So most East, East Asians have dry, flaky earwax. They don't have sticky earwax. Mm-hmm. Um, m- almost everybody in Africa has sticky earwax, and like 90% of Europeans have sticky earwax. And um, basically these are other characteristics that are also associated with like, a stronger body odor. And so um, East Asians have routinely complained um, that, you know, people from other parts of the world in particular have strong body odor and they don't like to be around them. Um, there are some people in East Asia that have the same problem. And um, the reason that in Japan they study this a lot is there have been, like, issues going back decades. A small minority of Japanese smell kind of like Europeans, like they have stronger body odor. And during conscription, people didn't want to be in the same bunk with them. Because I just weren't weren't used to that strong smell, so um, you know that's one thing. Uh, you know, people talk about like diet. So if you eat mm-hmm. a lot of red meat, if you do a lot of eat meat and cheese, that might cr- create like a certain smell. Sure. So that could be like not biological, um, not genetic, but um, yeah. So that's a thing. Now, I think in the United States, it still it wouldn't matter you wouldn't do a racial segregation. And right. this is not, this is not like uncommon in China. So I'll give, I'll tell you another story that's kind of sure. unrelated, but it, it, um, so I had a friend and she's, I mean, she's white American and her husband's also white. So, um, so, um, for Goldman Sachs, he's a banker. He is a banker. And, you know, um, she dropped her son off at the, at the daycare and she saw, um, she saw one of the daycare workers slap a child so she talked to them, and she was like, you know, do you slap my son? Like, I mean, I I don't really want you to do this. And they basically were very straightforward, like, oh, we only slap the the Chinese children. (laughs) And um, she was like, well, why? And she was like, oh, we just don't expect your children to behave. Oh, my God. And so basically... Like, they're beyond help. Well, I mean, barbarians will be barbaric kind of attitude. Yeah. And so with the Chinese children, there was a really, really strict... um, set of expectations of, you know, you control yourself, you're quiet, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas, like, you know, foreigners, like, who are mostly white with some Indians, um, these are, you know, bankers from New York. Sure. Um, you know, they would, their kids would just be allowed to, you know, be a little crazier because that's how those people are, those barbarians. It's crazy Jesus. barbarians.
1: You know? And so, I mean, this is not a typical expectation. Um, but it is. For Americans raised in a certain
2: culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we're a very insular culture. And in fact, so are the Chinese. So this is the irony. These are, I mean, if you talk to someone from, well, let's go back to the Netherlands. One reason they speak so many languages, they're a small country, Mm -hmm. right? You have to know about the rest of the world. Or if you're Canadian, pretty much have to know about the United States.
1: And France. You know?
2: You know, yeah, so I mean you, you have to know about other countries if you're a country sure. that's that's relatively small population wise China's one point four billion people. United yeah. States is three hundred and thirty million people. We don't really need you know only I think last night I checked forty percent of Americans ever have a passport, so a lot of like more than half of Americans never leave this country, mm-hmm. you know because they have to have a passport to do that well, I think you you have to now to go to Canada, in any case, yeah you do I heard yeah. that at least yeah you have I to haven't now. tried, <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, what I'm what I'm getting at there is both China and America are very insular cultures, and they have different values, and they can get, like, a little shocked about um, how the other culture is totally different. Because Chinese people, when they come to this country, and we have some friends that are mainlanders, and, you know, they talk about, like, various differences and, like, you know, that they're surprised by and things that they take for granted, and they're very different than what we take for granted. And, um, you know, just have to be aware, you know, and be... Um, so for example, like my attitude is, yeah, it's racist, but I'm also not a type of person that's going to be like, well, I mean, I never like, how could they do that? That's so problematic. I'm just like, I mean, they're China, they got their own way. Um, I don't think they should do what they do, but you know, like I'm not, I mean, like I'm not going to be like, you can't like narc on them or try to cancel the whole (laughs) nation.
1: Well, man, it's also like they are. Acting in the only way that they could act based on the culture around them.
0: You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like yeah. it's not
1: like they're all reading American uh, critical exactly. race theory. Just- you know what I mean?
2: Yeah, they only they only use that stuff when they try to manipulate our own culture's media and intellectual class. So, for example, um, you know uh, there have been. There have been things where um, there have been like kind of free Tibet protests, and mm-hmm. Chinese student associations in the United States said that it was um, it was creating a hostile environment, and they felt unsafe. Jesus. So they they just they're just using the stupid. I mean, like, and I'm I'm very like I think critical race stuff is like. Frankly, pretty stupid and pernicious. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I, I feel like really ambivalent because I'm like, okay, like they're using something really stupid and pernicious, but I also know that they're using it in bad faith. So maybe it'll right. it'll wake awake wake people up to the fact that these are just like these bad are like basically yeah, yeah, they're just they're bad faith. They're tools. Like they're all about they're all about winning the argument based mm-hmm. on the characteristics of who you
1: are and not the argument you're actually making. In my opinion, so. Yeah, and they're also um entirely based on on theory and not what actually works in real sure. life, which yep. is okay. So, I think that's a perfect point to get into your article. Um because so I re- I released a podcast uh this morning. This is Thursday night. <laughs> I still think, right? Um the days are all blending into one another. Yeah. Definitely but, uh, so, before we like first connected last week i was kind of spending the last few weeks of this whole coronavirus business um i knew i wanted to write something called we were never promised safety um uh, and, and just deal with the the possibility that we were going to have to live in a world and make our way while there was ever present physical danger around us and Mm -hmm. how unused to that we are in america Mm -hmm. especially if i mean i feel like we're probably within a few years each other i'm 41 i feel like anybody who's maybe more than Five or six years younger than me. One, if you didn't have an awareness, a cultural awareness, by the time the Cold War ended, you've basically lived your entire life, yes, never really believing that physical danger could be on your doorstep right now. I agree, and I so, agree. and so, I'm, I'm. The, the context of all this is that, like. I was just considering how we have this belief somehow that we live outside of history, that like all of the things Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. we read about in the history books about shipping routes, well, those were on big wood ships with big, huge sails. You know what I mean? Like when people Mm -hmm. got in wars, they shot each other with muskets or like with these little bi-wing planes or they fucking stabbed each other with spears like we imagine that war cannot exist again, even though it exists right now in other parts of the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. And I think that that's what... I mean, that's a big part of what I took from from your article. So, so the first one I wanted to pinpoint was... In the U.S., bickering about an appropriate official name for COVID-19, along with a sequence of bureaucratic blunders that led to dire shortages of diagnostic testing and medical gear, highlight the core competencies of today's media and governmental elites, administrative turf wars, and verbal jousting to burnish status and positional games. Even in this high-stakes moment, they cannot abandon unproductive old reflexes. Okay. So as soon as I read that, which is in the second paragraph of your piece, I was like, Oh damn that. And I was like, I'm going to love this article. I almost like, I I remember myself just sitting there being like, man, I got to send this to like eight of my friends. And then having that second reaction that was like, dude, you should read the rest of it first. (laughs) (laughs) I try to, I try to make sure I don't get caught up in that modern internet, uh, trend of just being like, I think I understand this and then sending it out to everybody, you know, like this is like the new important fact, but, uh, all right. So this entire COVID thing, by the way, I am not a COVID denier in the least. I understand as well as I can what we're dealing with, and I'm operating in as good a faith as I can possibly try to operate in. But I still think that the media in this situation is unable to present what's happening in the world in an objective and productive way because i think that they correctly believe that what happens in this situation is absolutely whether or not we have four more years of donald trump and i think that they're filtering everything through that that's true that's true i agree i agree with that so the the turf wars and the verbal jousting and all this um Unable to abandon old productive reflexes. I just want to get your viewpoint on on where the media is at right now and being Mm. able to handle something like this. And then, obviously, getting into how our elites are. Yeah.
2: Well, you know, um, I think the issue is actually what you kind of highlighted, where the Cold War ended Mm -hmm. and um, everything was... After the Cold War was basically about okay, we defeated the great enemy. The risk of nuclear annihilation is gone, mm-hmm. and so now okay, like what is the standard of you know just getting stuff done and executing? And well, I mean the standard is um, okay. So we won the big battle. We won the big war. So what do we have to fight us? between ourselves Mm -hmm. and so i think what happened after the cold war to a great extent is um the competition the competition the aggression the reflexes that were projected outward in the soviet union versus the free world and the Mm -hmm. united states and all that stuff okay it had to go somewhere so it just went inward Mm -hmm. okay and so you started having these like jostling between you know journalists one-upping each other or like bureaucrats are just like well you know um none of this really matters anyway except for my final position right so it's gone from being like a collective communal enterprise like going to the moon or Mm -hmm. you know doing something concrete out there in the world to what am i going to get for myself and my personal glory and, you know, I who's, who am I going to have to step over? Like, what dead bodies am I going to leave behind on my trail to the top, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's what's happening in the government to some extent. Um, in terms of journalism, you know, there's all these economic shocks and pressures on journalism today.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, there's also a skew in terms of who goes into elite media. So, you know, as you know, there's been pretty strong quantitative work that... Over half the people that are in elite media from Boston to D.C., you know, went to those like five schools plus Stanford or something, and so they have that pipeline. A lot of them, especially when they live in New York City, like it's pretty well known that a lot of them are basically trustafarians. Yeah. Um, You know how are you gonna how are you gonna like you know you're like an editorial assistant making fifty thousand dollars a year at the New York Times. okay, like that's a prestigious job, but like, how are you surviving outside of like, you know, maybe in a box somewhere? No, like, I mean, they have a nice loft in Williamsburg because their mom and dad will pay for that. And then their salary goes to everything else in their life. And so, um, journalism is kind of a, this sort of elite journalism. And it wasn't always like that. Um, it used to be people with college educations that were doing like the, you know, local beat uh, crime and all that stuff. But elite journalism from D.C. to New York, Um, you know, sorry, Boston Globe, but I'm not going to include Boston, right? But it's like Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, that sort of thing, Um, is, it's a gentry class. Yes. It's a gentry class profession now, and it reflects gentry class interest. Now, in, during the Cold War, there was a sort of noblesse oblige of of the elites that, well, you know, this is our nation, and, you know, we're going to stand for freedom and justice in the American way but um, after after that ended we won and so game on like we're going to get what's ours materially status wise um, it's just a great scramble um, it was chaos in the Soviet Union afterwards too the 1990s they hate 1990s were good for the United States because mm. all of our enemies were basically like on their knees Japan was right. doing its lost decade the EU hadn't happened yet Soviet Union collapsed um, it was actually a bad time in the former Soviet Union, you know, because they didn't know what they were doing and they weren't executing well. United States, we were having fun. Um, you know, we're both old enough to remember the '90s. '90s was great;
1: I loved it. But yeah. I'm a huge Pearl Jam fan.
2: It was all. I was supposed about, to be like, seeing
1: them tonight, actually. Oh yeah. God damn. It. Oh
2: yeah, yeah, the whole core thing, you know. Whole, yeah, yeah, the COVID-19, whole core. <laughs> yeah, yeah, COVID nineteen, you know, but um, so things like individual consumerism. Um, just kind of a lack of morality. And so, um, you know, when you're talking about, like, earlier, uh, we're talking about, like, critical race theory and, and all this, like, social justice stuff. A lot of it is just about, like, what can you do to beat someone in an argument and increase your own status? Right. And I think that's an extension of that sort of consumerism. Mm-hmm. Like, there is no morality. There is no principle outside of yourself. All that matters is how you feel and winning. Yeah. And so I think that's, that's how we're here. How is COVID-19 different? Um, I think, you know, my piece is pretty clear implicitly that COVID-19 is different because COVID-19 don't give a shit. Yeah. You know, all, it's just like, this is disease. This is nature, red in tooth and claw, and it's coming for us. And, you know, it doesn't really care, um, if it miss genders you or whatever. I mean, it just, it just doesn't no, fuck. Yeah, of course. It just doesn't care. Right. Like it's coming for us, whether you're rich, whether you're poor. And I know they're trying to emphasize certain demographics or having mm-hmm. issues. That's fine. But like, you know what? I think one reason that in a way we're taking it seriously is because it does hit the rich. Yeah. And, um, whatnot. And it's, it's, everyone is vulnerable on some level. Um, if they're of a certain age in particular. Sure. obviously, there's a huge difference where it's like if you're younger, you're not at risk and and stuff like that. But you know, all I'm trying to say is like who's old? Well, a lot of richer people are old. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's kind so, of yeah, um, those thing, two things correlate pretty well. Yeah. so I mean, I think um, people are having to deal with the reality that they can't talk their way out of this. Mm-hmm. They can't bullshit their way out of this. Like what are we gonna do as a society to create antiretrovirals, to create a vaccine? Um, to create social systems that can handle highly infectious disease. Um, Because, like, nature's in our face, you know? It's in our grill, and we need to get it out of of our face. We need to, like, get it out of our lives, at least in a way so we can function and get out of quarantine. Um, Arguing about, you know, like, someone's gender or their race or their class status, like, all these details, we don't got time for that shit
1: yeah man you know what I'm saying? so yes and and so this this article has um an interesting i don 't know if I want to call it a dichotomy but there is the and, and this is one of the things I find interesting about you in particular because a lot of the times this stuff breaks down to are you elitist or anti elitist you know are you science or anti science that's how that's how these conversations get sure, described. Sure, sure. there is an an elitist way to use science to backfill an argument that is just trying to confirm the things that you already think and trying to prove your point Mm -hmm. about the political stances you already have. And then there's the right way to use data and science. You may not agree with me. I'm going to say what my right way is. But to to look at that data and try to find out what story it's telling you mm-hmm. and then you know readjust your priors if that's what it comes to. But yeah, I'm I'm concerned that now there's so much information in the world. Like if you want to prove to your friend that your friend is an asshole on some sort of subject, you can Google yeah, for yeah. 30 seconds and you can find any number of reasons and and you know, quote unquote evidence to support your viewpoint sure. against your friend. And yep. that's worthless. Yep. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, I, but you mean, also have not- you, but you also do have a, uh, you place a strong value on actual expertise. So that's, sorry, that was the end. Yeah. Of the
2: it's, 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 it's a complicated, it's a complicated balance because, you know, like someone like Tom
1: Nichols, who's like sure. the death of expertise guy, I think he's right. a bullshitter. Honestly. Oh, my God, dude. I listened to him on um, Charlie Sykes' podcast because I try to, like, get – I have a couple of times, but I can't finish. Okay. So I, I, I hear you. I think I probably deleted, like, nine of them today. But the Tom Nichols one I did listen through to the end, and he said some things that were just Unbelievable to me. He yeah. genuinely, and I don't think that I'm misstating him at all, and I'm trying to represent him in the fullness of what he said. I am not doing this in bad faith, but I am n- nearly certain that he said and meant. Uh, he was discussing the Tom Cotton thing, and he. So the Tom Cotton thing being. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Co- yeah, I know. I'm just saying it for anyone who's yeah. listening and isn't familiar. Tom Cotton said that. Uh, Tom Cotton mentioned, what, a month and a half ago, that the virus may well have started in a biomed lab in Wuhan that is one of the most, what is it, uh, high-security biolabs in the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they study viruses, and he speculated on at least – some reasonable evidence that the virus might have originated there. And when he said that he was met with claims that he was a conspiracy theorist from all the major news networks and sources, like every bit of corporate media that we have been discussing was absolutely committed to the idea that, that uh Tom Cotton was sniffing around a conspiracy and like repeating fringe views. And so Tom Nichols on this podcast said that Tom Cotton by bringing up the the Wuhan lab thing actually made it harder for people to believe the Wuhan lab thing now. So he Said the right thing, and by saying the right thing, he created a conspiracy that now has poisoned what is actually the right thing. That is yeah. utterly fucking insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so I think like being right is what disqualified his expertise. Exactly, exactly. Being right yeah, exactly. in the wrong way.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's this thing. It's, it's more of a left-of-center thing right now, although there are some yes. right-of-center people that do it. But it's like the way you say something or who you cited, and it's like it doesn't really matter whether you're right. It's credentials. what is the process. You, yeah, credentials, authority, mainstream. Yep. And so, um, like I'll tell you um, – I follow a lot of people on science Twitter, and in February, and very few people on science Twitter were worried about coronavirus. They were worried about Richard Dawkins being a eugenicist. Jesus. You know what I'm saying? I mean, they were not worried about I that don't stuff. speak now science they're... Twitter,
1: by the way, dude. What? I said, I don't speak science Twitter.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's fine. That's fine. I'm just, I'm just saying, like, the academics that I follow. <laughs> no, I know, you know. I'm
1: just saying I don't yeah. understand any of it. Yeah. So I just skip it.
2: So, I mean, so like these are people, now they're all on the corona bandwagon. Yeah. In terms of focusing on and that's fine, but they're just really smug about people that don't know what they're talking about. And I was just like, dude, you didn't give a crap about this before like March fifth. Like yeah. I bought like a year's worth of toilet paper on February fourth.
0: <laughs> like that's literally the truth.
2: It's in my chat.
1: You know? I was stocked up well enough and finally made my first run like two days ago. Was it it's pretty chill right now though, right? Isn't it? No, man. It's I mean it's in Los crazy? Angeles. Yeah, man. Right A okay. gone. Grocery mm. store gone. It's oh crazy. you need toilet paper though? Yeah yeah. Oh yeah, I don't care about it. Like I said, we got I got a year in the Yeah, shed. yeah. I'm saying I had one month. I just had to go two days ago. Well. You know what? Like the shower always works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean I'm a guy. I don't give a fuck. Um all right, so let me hit you with this next sentence from uh, your piece: Economists, those apex predators of social science, marshaled the evidence for efficiencies and gains in productivity due to trade and international supply chains. And then I want you to explain just-in-time inventories because mm. I don't think that people know about this at all. Mm-hmm. Um, this mm-hmm. is even a, this is a relatively new concept to me as well. Yeah, uh, but well, this is a new a, thing. Well, relatively new, right? Relatively new. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so this is actually like one of those things. You know, Andrew Yang talked, for instance, about, um, you know, the replacement of of jobs with technology, the replacement of, you know, our trucking industry with automation. Just-in-time inventories is one of those things like that that I feel like people will instantly understand and be like, oh, holy shit, that's what that is? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, you know, I'm not like, um, industrial
2: science specialist, but I can, I mean, I know the general, yeah, yeah, core, yeah, I'm, so, yeah. you know, so like, for example, like really concretely, supermarkets, um, have shifted to just in time inventory recently. Um, I think really a lot of it was pioneered by Walmart mm-hmm. because they have this really complicated supply chain, um, software that they use. And so, you know, local Walmarts order things based on, I mean, there are certain areas where everyone uses paper towels and certain areas mm. where everyone uses rags. I don't know. You know, these things like that. And so um, every store doesn't get the same amount of everything. They get an amount based on their locality, based on who's checking out what. So it's like, it's intelligent. It's like that South Park episode where the Walmart comes to life. It's intelligent about what it needs to stock based on what people are purchasing, because, you know, they're doing the swiping. Mm-hmm. And so it knows what's going out. It knows what needs to come in. And that way, the shelves are always stocked. Right. But since it's just in time, you're not, like, having a huge pileup in the back or mm-hmm. in the extra space. Or even need needing have- the
1: warehouse space in the first exactly. place. Because the idea is that it responds to the market immediately. Yes. And it produces only the goods that you know you're going to sell. Yes, exactly. And so there is no back line of production, no matter how important the supply of that item mm-hmm. might be. Mm-hmm. No, because you because you, you know exactly. And so with supermarkets, they
2: used to have... And I worked in a supermarket 25 years ago now in the dairy and these pallets of milk would come back,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, w- would come in, and um, you know I would unload them. But like a lot of them would be stacked in the back, and I would slowly unload them. And it was always a big issue with us back then. Um, okay, well we don't want the milk to go bad, mm-hmm. so we need to, to get not so much, right? Right. We need we need to get just enough. Um, but, like, we only have so much space. It was always a big deal. I think today, probably, there would be a lot less unloading for me to do because they know mm-hmm. much, much better what the purchase rates are based on the time of the month. Now, here's the issue this is all based on base rates, like normal past behavior. Mm-hmm. But people aren't behaving like that today. They're like buying in huge amounts. To like, stock up their own larder because they want some buffer for themselves. Well, it turns out the supermarkets don't can't manage that now. Yeah. Because they don't have stuff from the back that they can pull up like they used to. You know, it's just in time. And now the demand outran the supply chain. Because the supply chain only has so much flexibility within the normal range. And guess what? COVID-19 crisis is not within the normal range. COVID don't give a fuck. No. No, but it, it, COVID, does, COVID doesn't give a shit about your supply chain. Yeah. It just, it just doesn't give a shit, right? So the supply chain is, like, designed to absorb, I don't know, like a two-sigma two sigma event, like, you know, two standard deviations, right? Well, COVID's like four, five, six. Mm. Like, it's way out there. It's a once-in-a-century event. And so obviously the whole system is messed up. And it's not just supermarkets. It's everything. Everything is backed up. A lot of our stuff is from China. And, um, you know, we had initially a supply shock in January... And February, but really, it started mattering a lot only like within the last like three to four weeks, from what I've heard. Sure, because um, the whole system has a delay, you know. And so, the whole spring, we're gonna find that like there's gonna be certain things that we normally just take for granted that aren't around because the some part is Chinese or it was made in China, and the Chinese are just getting back up to normal, and so everything will be here a month from now instead of, you know, a month ago when they were all shut down and you know, which is not true. It's mostly February that I'm talking about, right, you right. know, but in any case, um, there's just like this complicated network of things that are interconnecting us and in an Adam Smith way, like producing efficiencies through specialization. But the problem with specialization is, okay, you have this one thing that you do. So let's say you have like um, one cobbler. In the town. Mm -hmm. But what if he dies of plague? Right. You're fucked.
1: Yeah, and and that's what we're dealing with now. Because we are in a position where... Okay, so... Technology has brought us so many amazing things, right? Mm-hmm. But I was sitting there, uh, you know, mid last week when Wisconsin went out and voted and they had these long lines in this terrible weather. And there were, I think, five uh, precincts open in Milwaukee. And to see people standing outside of these places, right? I was like, wait a second, man. Wasn't technology supposed to fix this? And all it took was something like this and then technology breaks down and then we don't have humans behind humans ready to, to deal with these things. Like why couldn't we have way more precincts open, you know, like maybe if it was back, like it used to be, there would be a, a person at the precinct in this little small town. But now since we don't need people, we increase that small town to a small city. And now there are the same amount of people running the precinct, except the rest of its technology, which is fucking fantastic and efficient until the technology doesn't work or something else in the, uh, panoply of odds of things that can happen to humans fails and now we're in a situation that is totally untenable because mm. we've technologied ourselves out of any fundamental sort of life. Yeah. Does that make yeah. sense? Am I crazy right now? Yeah.
2: Yeah. No, I mean, so it's weird because, you know, these sorts of criticism of technology are old in a way. Like, for example, like we wouldn't Sure, have, I don't want to be a Luddite about it. Yeah, we, we wouldn't like, – you know, like people would say, like, we're, you're not going to be able – like, memories will just disappear if you. Mm-hmm. everyone knows how to read and write, you know? And that's not true, that's but right. on the other hand, our memories aren't as good and we don't mm-hmm. do like mnemonic techniques because we don't need to, right?
1: So, um, but that's a different thing because that's something about individual skills. I agree with you, but this, this is the only thing I want to say about this. So with the memory thing, right? We depend now that our phone will have the messages we sent, uh, our pictures, the things that we hold on to as memories are now often implanted into our device. And the ones that are there, the the, the important memories we keep, right? But the ones that are there and only there, if that device is gone, those memories are essentially gone. And so that's what I'm saying. Like, if we're dependent wholly on technology, then if that technology fails, our failure is increased tenfold yeah the issue with the issue with the technologies that we have today, like the cloud, is they're systematic,
2: and so there could be systematic failures which exactly. like, affect everything, yes. and there's no redundancy. So for example, if I have a bunch of books, physical books mm-hmm. um, and you know I burn one of them by mistake or I like destroy it somehow, there's still a bunch of other books. right. But if um, I drop my Kindle in the water, all the books are gone. I mean, access to them is. I mean, yeah, they're exactly. still there in the cloud, well, but yeah. But, but I effectively mean, for difference. you. they're Same difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah so I mean, I think that's what you're about. talking about. So technology that's is great, but plan. like we we need to figure out like some sort of way to have some robustness um, to external shocks and risks, and that's going to mean that it costs some money in a way. Like you know, for I mean, the like, simple thing would be like um, like I have things in drop. I have pretty much everything in Dropbox um, or on my various desks, and like i have like one two three four like four computers that i use regularly Mm -hmm. okay and so i have like a lot of um redundancy Mm -hmm. that's more expensive than it was just had one computer and use dropbox you know right so i mean that does mean though that like i'm not scared if my My computer melts down. I mean, even if it did, Dropbox is supposed to save it. But anyways, all I'm trying to say is, like, you know, if Dropbox is down and my computer is down, I still have three other computers that are synced. (laughs) You know?
1: Yes, because you have a backup backup
2: system. system. Which which is super rare. And, like, who cares? It doesn't normally matter. But, you know, something weird could happen. Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah, something weird like COVID.
2: Yeah. So, like... It's like, you know, when Amazon Cloud, Amazon Cloud went down, like a bunch of big sites went down because they didn't have enough redundancy in other services. You know, they were too dependent on Amazon
1: Cloud. So, well, I think uh, also like video game servers dropped off big time after everybody started using uh, the internet like at the same time all the time. Mm-hmm. It's just okay. interesting to see where our uh, our our inefficiencies and our weaknesses are in the um, safety cloud that we've built ourselves.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, there, and there's a lot of them. It's just that we don't, they're not like salient in our mind. They're not like in the front of the mind until there's a disaster. It's just like, you know, IT security guys. Yeah. You know, they, they've told me, they're like, no one gives a crap about us. No one pays attention to us unless there's a disaster. Exactly. And then all of a sudden, um, it's like, what are you? What have you been doing? And like, you know, I had a, f- a friend and he's he was an IT security guy. And he basically was like, I don't really work that hard because, um, you know, if there's a problem, they want me to be the goat anyway. Probably going to fire me (laughs) whether I work hard or whether I don't. And so basically he was just pretty lazy and just collecting his salary. And he saved enough and then he had like an exit where it's like, oh, I want to do a startup after I get fired, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's, and he just said like, everybody in security knows this, that there's no, cause you know, even if he worked really hard, he said that there's something could happen, yeah. you know? And you know, a lot of times it's like through some sort of superior manager person who got socially hacked and all of a sudden, and that's not his fault, but he would still have to take the fall. That's that just how seems, it is. That sounds like Anthony Fauci right now.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, I think I, I don't really think too much about that sort of thing, but I, I do have, I do suspect that Fauci is, Fauci is like figuring out. And I know with, with Trump, he's he's pretty erratic a lot of the time, and be um, people there are civil servants in the government who are like you know. I'm just going to stay here and just take my, sure. take my shots from Trump and take my shots from the media. I want to be here because I think I can do better than if I was replaced. Yeah. Okay? And so I think that's obviously what's going on with some of these people like Fauci and Bricks. Like, yeah, they're kind of like kissing up to Trump a little, but what are you going to do? He's the president, you know? And they want their job because they think they can do the best. To protect people.
1: Honestly, I feel like they've both been pretty straight shooters the entire time, and I don't think that they're kissing Trump's ass. It's weird to me that once Burke started diverging a little bit on how she talked tonally about the models, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. people started, people on the left actually, which was really funny, started throwing the woman who's an actual expert in a position of leadership just overboard. They were like, Get her out of here and put Anthony Fauci on everyone's TV. I was like, wait, what the fuck? A lot of it is
2: is very performative, but it's also very reflexive. So I think one of the things that bothers me about the reaction to Trump is he is what he is. He's always been like this, but he has this ability to troll and trigger to the point
1: where they're like rabid animals and he's just leading them around. I think the thing that has become obvious for me over the last—I don't know—a few months or year or whatever—I've been—I've been like trying to pay attention to like what it might be that people see in Trump, and he says so many fucking things that that differ. I don't want to be giving him too much credit by saying this, but there's a part of me that thinks that maybe he's just A B testing everything he says, and then. Mm-hmm like basing what he actually does off the response.
2: You would the issue with I mean not the issue. I think the dynamic of Trump is like I said, he's very cunning. Mm-hmm. He has he has like a native ability to maintain and manage and manipulate like social interactions and social games. And I don't think he does it through some plan of what he's doing. I think he improvises sure, think so and he, yeah. ha- he has natural skill at that. The problem that I believe and I've been saying to friends with Trump is that he's a master of men not a master of nature right Um, you know he can't like you know he can't like you know COVID-19 SARS coronavirus 2 Trump can't be like SARS coronavirus 2 we've got these antiretrovirals they're beautiful they're the best get out of here you know, it's it's not going to work. Like his thing, his <laughs> thing, invisible enemy. Yeah, it's just like, you know, this vaccine, it's beautiful. You know, it's like you can't bluff and bluster your way and kind of trigger mm-hmm. a virus. Like it's it's just a force of nature. And so I think that's that's where he's kind of a little bit out of his element here. I think that's causing problems. But you know what? Here's the flip side. It's also causing problems for his enemies because they too are basically cunning creatures yes. of this social yeah. milieu. That that was kind of the point of my city journal piece where I didn't really bring up Trump partly because it's just like people go crazy yeah. and then it'll distract the rest exactly. of it. I wanted to like emphasize that I think this is a systematic problem that's deep and structural in America's elite that that precedes Trump and will probably postdate him. Oh, absolutely, we'll, you
1: know. Yeah, this isn't done yet. Yeah. No.
2: And so I think I think we need to just you know, those of us, those of us who aren't like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, because I don't think. I mean, I'm a scientist. I'm a science person, right? Yep. The world out there is super important to me. That's what's interesting to me. Um, I think we need to get more involved um, in this culture, mm-hmm. in this society, and not just don't just leave it to the lawyers.
1: You're talking about the science the- community, yeah.
2: The science community, um, you know, engineers, whatever, just people that work in concrete things. Because I think um, part of the issue is, so, you know, there's this crisis in humanities education where people don't major in English and all this. And one of the arguments that a lot of conservatives make, and I'm pretty sympathetic to it, is that, well, I mean, what happened is 50 years ago, they just decided that, uh, you know, a good work was a subjective assertion.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And so there's like no reason for people to like study English. If you think it's all arbitrary and subjective, Sure, you know, that it's just like some stupid game. And so they've undermined their own, um, self-worth in a way, uh, because they don't believe in objective principles, you know, objective beauty. And so another thing, um, you know, I'll tell you just kind of related to this that I've been thinking about is, uh, it's really evident and really clear in the data that obesity is a huge risk factor For um, COVID nineteen, yeah, you know, dying right. Yeah, this was evident in some early Chinese data. Later, the French were saying it, and now there's a lot of data in the United States. So I mean, that's just reality, right? Um, But we also live in a culture that has, uh, like, um, you know, like fat acceptance or fat studies, and and um,
1: some of them engage in straight up denial. That being obese is unhealthy. Yeah, I don't understand that, man. And it's it, it's funny to me because I have lived part of my life as a smoker, and I know what the, uh, you know what the accepted community opinion on smokers is. Yeah. and no one has a difficulty saying that spo- that smokers might be more vulnerable to COVID. And by the way, there's actually there's actually articles out there, and I'm not sure how much credence to give these, but that say there's something about smoking that actually makes you less susceptible <laughs> yeah. to COVID. Um, and yeah, if that proves that. true, I'm gonna just lord that over people forever. Yeah. But uh, I, there's no problem ever saying that because smoking is the one like vice or addiction that everyone still feels like they're totally able. To just outwardly hate. <laughs> with, uh, so I, yeah. I think I think one difference with smoking though is people perceive
2: um, smoking to be a choice. Of course, and, um, yeah. and now they, there's there's an, argu- there's an argument by you know fat acceptance people that well I mean that's just how they are. Right. And, and I'm like, um, yeah, go to a third world country where everyone's a farmer. Right. You do not. Like do just none of them why? have that gene. Yeah. Like, did you watch that movie, Wally? Yes. Yeah. And it's just like, it's like we live in Wally's world. I mean, yes. I'm like being in quarantine. I gained like five pounds. Like I gotta like you know, I, I missed the gym. Let's just put it yeah, that me way. Too, man. You know. And so they um, closed down my running area. Yeah, like I think a lot of us are struggling because we need these things because the lives we live are just so sedentary. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm not, what I said on Twitter was we need to have a war against obesity but not obese people because of course just just screaming at people is not going to change anything. It's a huge social system where we're just very hedonistic and gluttonous in different mm-hmm. ways, you know? Um
1: it, so yeah it's, it's man i have some i have some friends who who struggle with obesity and they don't have any problem talking about it no no like I mean, you know it they're sucks. not happy that that they are struggling with it yeah. but they're not like ashamed to be people and they don't pretend that there's a reality different than the one we mm-hmm. all deal in exactly exactly it you know
2: regular people in particular Have a lot of common sense. Yeah. It's just that there is a kind of a cultural elite that's Mm -hmm. pushing these really weird paradigms because that's what
1: they do. That's their job. All right. So I'm going to read you this quote um, from your article and then let's take a little pause for a Mm -hmm. minute and then we'll get back into this because this is, this is like some of the meat that I really want to talk about here. So, The quote is, despite the reality that we live in a world where China's economic and geopolitical heft looms large, American elites nursing a 20th century hangover haven't updated their understanding of the world. China may be remote, alien and exotic, but it was too easy to dismiss COVID-19, the COVID-19 outbreak in Wuhan as sui generis. In a global age, we have become too parochial as a nation held captive by our own particular history. And so I think that that ties up what I was discussing with you before. And then I want to get into how the elite makes decisions versus common sense. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. So we'll take a little pause right here. Okay. So I've been thinking a lot about – how people are thinking about issues now, that is kind of a uh, uber vague statement. But um, in in context of, for instance, like Elizabeth Warren's uh, campaign to be the Democratic nominee, there is a certain certain sort of knowledge that someone like elizabeth warren is perceived to have Mm -hmm. and now i'm not calling her dumb or unqualified or any of those things i don't think that she is dumb at all i do think that she has a sort of theoretical knowledge that is not necessarily applicable to the world i think that we have given too much credence to the idea to the, to the notion that if you can explain something well enough that, that births it into reality. Mm -hmm. And I feel like Mm -hmm. you're going to have a lot to say about that.
2: Yeah. I mean, so I think this goes back to expertise and what that is. And I think a lot of times people think an expert is someone that talks a certain way with a certain level of confidence, a certain cadence, a certain accent. Um, certain credentials, certain institutional affiliations. Yeah. Um, But the reality is those are just signals of -hmm. the underlying expertise. And um, part of the issue is, you know, the whole tyranny of the metrics issue where once you figure out a way to measure something, um, people start focusing on the instrument, the way you measure rather than the underlying thing it's supposed to be measuring. So um, I, I think that's kind of what you're getting to.
1: Um, Well, it's definitely some of it. Um, I think I can even fall on both sides in that explanation. For instance, the it's commonly accepted that, and this Joe Biden talked about this uh, when he was still vice president, I believe, but Mm -hmm. you know, there's the, the, the common statistic that, that one in four women in um, American colleges are sexually assaulted. Mm -hmm. Now, Questioning the instrument that would lead you to that assessment <laughs> of the situation that would make the the sexual assault rate in college similar to just, like, the most awful war-torn lands.
2: Like yeah, exactly. Literally exactly.
0: pillaging it doesn't, pass,
2: it, do, it doesn't pass the smell test because right. it's, it uses a very broad... So I think that issue... Uh, a statistic. People love numbers and they love statistics, um, but most people... For most people, it's magic. It's actually not something they ever deal with. So that's why I pointed out the New York Times um, editorial um, board writer Mara Gray and Brian Williams not being able to do simple arithmetic. Because that was very, very illustrative of their lack of quantitative analytical ability. And I think it highlights why everybody in the mainstream media the vast majority of them didn't actually realize it's an exponential growth. And so that means that COVID-19, that means sars coronavirus 2 is spreading in the United States all through February, even though you can't pick it up statistically because it's mm. not that many people,
1: you know? Just to reference the, the Brian Williams-Mar Gray thing. So she tweeted that... The money it was actually it was somebody else, somebody else, somebody else who tweeted it is somebody else like working for four. I don't know. It was. Just oh, no, a no, no, freelance. No. I think that Margaret actually is the one who tweeted it. And then she was invited on Brian Williams because of that tweet. OK, so my understanding is somebody else tweeted it and then she commented on it. That may well be true. I could yeah. be wrong about that. Yeah. But, but in, in any either, case, either, yeah. either way, either way, the idea was that the amount of money Michael Bloomberg had spent on his failed Campaign for the Democratic nomination, which was roughly in the neighborhood of five hundred million dollars. Yeah, he could have just given a million dollars to yeah. every American citizen. Yeah, now that's off by a factor of a million. Yes, um, the actual number was like a dollar I think you know. Yeah, because they the can't. They, they did. They don't understand canceling apparently. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. It is unbelievable to make that math mistake in the first place. But after you've made that math mistake, it is still unbelievable to make the economic mistake. The mm-hmm. idea that we could hand everybody a million dollars and it would still be worth a million dollars is, again, just utterly ignorant of everything about economics. Money grows on
2: trees. Money uh, grows on trees.
1: If we all had a million dollars, it wouldn't be worth a million dollars. What makes it worth a million dollars is that we want it. They don't know what, yeah, they don't know what inflation
2: is. Exactly. So, I mean, I think, again, this is the issue that, they don't deal in the real world. They deal in words. They deal in rhetoric. They in deal theory. in spin. Yeah, yeah in theory. Um, positioning and posturing. Like a lot of Twitter is about posture. Right. And that that kind of attitude has percolated and like kind of dominated a lot of the elite media discourse. Um, just who says what, how they say it. Not what they say. Right. Not what the argument really is. Like, you know, it'll be like... Do you know, like, I'll give you a concrete example, which is like super strange. I said something like many years ago about, um, it was about like, you know, like I was born in Bangladesh, moved to the United States, blah, blah, blah. But I was like, you know, sometimes I wonder if this country is becoming more like Bangladesh than the country that I grew up in. You know, it's Twitter. So I I wasn't elaborating on what I said, but you know, inequality and all these other things and corruption. But um, somehow, a bunch of people retweeted it, and it got to Ann Coulter, and she retweeted it. And so someone tweeted at me like, kind of angrily, like, How do you feel that she retweeted you? Like, How does that make you feel? And I'm just like... Happy that my thoughts got out there? Why would I care that somebody, like, you know, 50 retweets down the line, retweeted me that you find objectionable? Yeah. Like, I don't really care, you know? I mean... It's just, like,
1: Hitler was a vegetarian, so? Yeah, like, if the wrong person agrees with you, then what you said is wrong? Yeah, communists
2: believed in social justice. Are you not going to believe in social justice <laughs> now? I mean, this is all true, right? Of course. I mean, it's like a lot of people have believed communists in a lot of
0: <laughs> Yeah, they still do. I mean, they're still
2: around. They just, we, just, we just call them. Anyway, I don't want to get into that. But, um, <laughs> you know, all I'm trying to say, though, is... Um, I think what I was trying to illustrate with Mark Gray and the media there is just the lack of familiarity with reality, the shape of reality, Mm -hmm. how you break it down with numbers. And then, as you said, okay, what's the implication of everybody getting a million dollars? Have you thought that through? No, you haven't. You haven't done any analysis. It's just like chatter, 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 talk, talk, describe. Um, Hey, let's laugh because we're on TV and, you know people that watch cable news watch us i you know i don't oh, know yeah what, man they what thought is this? they were
1: well i feel like i feel like all of that level of cable news now is basically they're trying to create content that will then be retweeted um and so that's totally what it is they basically set up a segment as this like all-encompassing twitter slam and it completely backfired in their faces yeah well, as I mean, it should, should. mara she did write a piece about like how it was like jim crow oh Wait, she tried to like explain it away, like you were racist.
2: Well, no, she and said math? Well, what happened is, I mean, she basically admitted she's not good at math. Her high school teachers would not be surprised. And then she said she got like a lot of racist attacks. So she got like some emails and some tweets that uh-huh. were mean. And so she wrote a whole thing about how her people have dealt with worse. And she, so she basically made it about racism. Yeah, so of it was a win,
1: man. It's a when you have a hammer, everything's a nail. Yeah, man. I don't, I don't fucking like that shit at all. Like, yeah. that is not the reason you fucked that up. No, it didn't have to do with the racing, it's because you're dumb. <laughs> yeah, man. And that's just, just like a second order uh, thought to have. Like, you shouldn't be on TV if you didn't think. Like, if you believe that Bloomberg could have just given everyone a million dollars rather than run for president, like, by the way, he's a pretty economically astute dude, I think he would have figured it out. Yeah. It's a, it, it didn't pass
2: the smell test on a lot of levels, and I think that's what's disturbing you because Brian, Gray, or Brian Williams couldn't figure it out. She couldn't figure it out. The producers couldn't figure it out. Not only was the math wrong, I told my 8-year-old daughter about the, the division and the math and kind of a little bit of the scenario, and she just mm-hmm. looked at me like I was crazy. Yeah, because
1: it makes no fucking sense. It makes no sense to someone to make that error. You know, in her opinion, if she's eight. That would literally be one thousand months of what Andrew Yang was promising you.
2: Yeah, yeah. So it it, it just it was it, again. It's this alternative world where um, it's basically like feelings don't feelings don't care about your facts. <laughs> you know, that yeah, was, yeah, yeah, I, I had that as a pin tweet once, but it's like, yeah. feelings don't care about your facts. It's like, how do you feel? Like if, if the fact doesn't matter, like, you know,
1: um, it's, it's the feelings that matter. So what do you, th- so you also mentioned, um, uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb in your, um, article and that guy's famous for the black Swan theory. Yep. And. He is basically like the anti-elitist elitist. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah no. Is, I mean, is he's, that an accurate description? And I'm yeah, not trying to slight the dude at all. I think that like some of what he, he says well, he's is really... He's, he's, he's a gadfly. Yeah, he I loves doing gadfly. that. And I love yeah. doing that. I want to push people's buttons. It's fun. And so I get why he does that <laughs> stuff. But he also happens to be fucking right a lot. And mm. when he's right and other people have argued that he's not going to be right yeah. uh, based on theory... That works a couple of times, and it works real well those couple of times. Yeah. But if a dude keeps being right all the time, then it's not him that's the problem. It's your theory that's the problem. And yeah. that is like, literal to me, that's the embodiment of what Donald Trump is. He's like, oh, really? You're going to tell me this isn't doesn't work, mm-hmm. and this doesn't work, and this doesn't work? Well, hey, yeah. I just became president. So whatever skill it is he has – and by the way, I think Donald Trump is incredibly ignorant about most of the important things that his job intersects, and I think he's also a malignant narcissist. But that does not mean that I don't think that he can be right a lot because, Mm -hmm. again, as you were saying before, like the understanding of man versus the understanding of nature, he might have no – understanding of any of the nature around him any of the relevant stuff that happens outside his head but that guy damn well knows how to handle the people in front of him yeah and like even if it's just him torturing them into fetal balls clutching their blankets and crying like jim acosta does that is an effective strategy if all you're trying to do is defeat other people.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean he can win I mean he can definitely win in those sorts of those sorts of like inner you know person to person he, he's got the skills. Um yeah, so I and I, I think the media is kind of kind of feeds off that as well. Like that's what they also can do. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's not like they're going to be like looking at a schematic of a bridge and trying to figure out if it's structurally sound. Like the, that's not a skill they got. Right, of course. But like if they want to beef with Trump, I mean it's good for the New York Times. Like the beef with Trump is good for the New York Times. It's good for their bottom line. Oh, absolutely. Like this beef, this beef is great, right? So um, they have this weird incentive where like they have to be against everything he's for. Yes, but. His existence is good for them. Like if Joe 100%. Biden, if Joe Biden gets elected, a lot of people will. Prop. I mean, you know, I think what happens with newspapers is sometimes people just don't renew. Right. I think a lot of people would not because like why why would you read the New York Times? Like their hate their morning hate read wouldn't be there anymore. You know, I'm sure
1: they would find something, man. Yeah, they probably. I, mean, find I feel something. like that's kind of how we got to this point: is that they just stopped doing that when Barack Obama came around, and then everything became. Uh, trying to negotiate trivialities so that you can one up your peers. I mean, yeah. we're talking about a situation now where uh, media and social media are both dominated by a certain point of view, and that point of view, even the the surveys say this, like that point of view is predominantly held by uh, uh upper class white women, like yeah, Karen. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Man, the the tweets about how Karen is a racist slur, it's funny because I I know that that's totally wrong, but I also know it's totally right. By the standards that they have created for what counts as racist now, Karen is 100% racist. I mean, I've known Karen's my whole life. Everyone knows Karen's, dude.
2: You know, like every mother of uh a... Women I've dated are now, you know, <laughs> you know <what> I'm <laughs> <laughs> like they're they're all Karen. But I mean yeah <laughs> uh,
1: um, anyway, I yeah, so um, all right, let's move to this. So, esoteric forms of intellectual exercise that prioritize human subjectivity and the power of social construction have marched through academic institutions and metastasized into public spaces. Thinkers like Judith Butler of UC Berkeley, who argues that gender is a performance intelligible only in a social matrix, come to shape elite discourse more with every passing year they would have us believe that the shape of the world is purely a function of our wills and that reality can be bent to our ideology without limitation that is where we are
2: yeah yeah i mean i think so i you know this is not obviously like if you talk to the guy that's going to home depot to work on his project you know whatever his ideology is that's not that guy But, you know, the people that I know in academia, I've seen a huge change in academia in 10 years. Um, People in academia were always liberal, Mm. but today, like, they're radical. Yeah. Like, they're radical, and a lot of them, it's happened gradually, like a frog kind of boiling... They've just slowly it's like the people on to their left or to their radical edge have kept going and kept going. They slowly pulled them. So people that are moderate today would be radical 10 years ago. Um, the things that they will say and accede to the things that are they will say are problematic. And it's fine. It's a subculture. The only problem for them that I always tell them is like your money comes from the people out there. So, if you think that, like, they're not worth anything, why should they fund your research? Um, not all of the research. A lot of the basic science is pretty blue sky, so it's not, uh-huh. like, you know, directly applicable. Um, and, and you know, most of the people that I know are in science, but it started to affect them, too. To the point where they start to, like, problematize sex and gender in weird ways that are really hard to understand. Um, like, I haven't been in academia for four years now, and, like, I don't even know... What some of the people are talking about Mm -hmm. anymore? Um, What is problematic? Like it gets just super confusing, and it's it's very very similar to like you know when you have like a closed subculture of intellectuals that don't have any mooring in the external world, they start to go in really weird directions Mm -hmm. because that's what intellectuals do. So, for example, like ultra orthodox Jews have like this you know rabbinical culture of learning, and to be frank, it's pretty esoteric and weird. And it's only possible because there are other Jews out there, just like broader society, where, you know, like in Israel, they get paid by the state to learn. Mm-hmm. That was never possible 200 years ago. Like, this is actually a new cultural form. And so they learn there are Jews in New York City, ultra-Orthodox Jews, like Hasidic Jews, who are vegetarian because they don't trust anyone to do the right kosher rituals, including their own rabbis. <laughs> I mean, that's that's like the logical extension, right? Yeah, And so they're... There are situations like, and you've seen it, we've seen it, where like uh, the oppre- oppression Olympics. Yes. Um, you know, like what I hate is like, you know, like there's just like crazy stuff that happens. Like, I was watching a thing, and some guy gets up, some bro, and he's like, you know, you know, blah blah blah. I'm major in this, and uh, you know, I'm disabled, and I'm just like, motherfucker, like. What the hell are you disabled at? Like you can't. You can only drink micro brews. I don't know. You know. Like if I can't. Like if you, you gotta. Expl- ADD. Okay, whatever. That's that not you disability. know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, but that's what I'm saying. Yeah, if yeah. You yeah gotta, no, if agreeing. you gotta explain to me your disability, it's it's kind of like it's kind of like. Well, actually, I'm good looking. Uh-huh. No, no, really, I am. You know, like if you gotta like convince someone. Yeah. That's just that's not working. But but why why is this bro saying he's disabled? Well, because he's got to figure out a way he's mar- figure out a way where he's marginalized. Well, because that's how that's how you that's how you get your points. Yeah, exactly. I was
1: gonna say he doesn't get to participate in the conversation otherwise.
2: oh he, well he he does get to participate in this conversation, but he would just have to be a punching bag. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's basically. I mean, you just bend over and just like take it, take it. You know, I mean, if you're a white if you're a cis hat white male you have all the privilege in the world and your privilege is to get just like verbally bludgeoned every day. Like that's what you're there for, you know? And so, um, if you, you're disabled,
1: you can't say that as a part of, uh, an oppressed class. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how dare yeah. you? How dare you? <laughs>
2: well, no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm weight adjacent now.
1: Oh, yeah, that's probably true. In another 100 years, you're definitely going to be fully white in America. Well, so, I mean, that's, that's one of the things about
2: identity politics that's different than classical Marxists. Classical Marxists, like, they did have some terms for poor people, like false consciousness that identified. But, like, I never heard them saying, well, actually, you're rich adjacent, even though
1: you live in a hovel. Well, how about, yeah. how about uh, internalized misogyny or internalized racism? Yeah, like yeah, all, all that, you're saying is that's false. you don't right? agree with me. Yeah, so therefore, yeah. you rather than rather than me accepting that women have different views about things or black people have different views about things or that people from Bangladesh have different views about things, I'm going to tell you that. Now that you have disagreed with the thing that we've all accepted as true, you are no longer a woman. You are no longer black. You are no longer from Bangladesh. Like your, your differing opinion, like makes you actually sacrifice that part of your legitimate Mm -hmm. born identity. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: Well, so, I mean, I think this does tie back into the quote that you you put out there where I wanted to point out this whole like gender as a performance thing. And I mean, I don't really care too much about all of this stuff. Like ultimately I don't either, but I'm going to yeah. speak
1: my mind and, and, and be like, yo, this is not true. Sorry. Yeah. I yeah. To cut.
2: yeah. No, no, that's fair enough. But, but I think it's part of a piece of this just tendency of blurring everything and just making everything arbitrary and rearranging everything. However you want to like, there are no rules. There's no structure. There's no shape in the universe. Yeah. You know, so it, 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 and like, here's another example where it's like, you know, I've like talked, I, I have started using the word as well, um, where it's like someone, someone is conventionally attractive. Oh. What does that, what does that mean? I mean. I mean, there are some people that are like, okay, they're a little atypical, but like, I mean, what is? It's like lived experience. Like, what's the unlived experience? Like, what do you? What am I even trying to say? Conventionally attractive. Everyone knows what I'm trying to say. Like, evolutionary psychologists have shown tribal men from Papua New Guinea um, photos of uh, photos of like you know white women, Asian women, black women. And they've asked them which one's attractive, and they pick the exact same ones as some college student in upstate New York, mm. and then they demand to see the pictures of the Asian women again. But you know that's a, that's a whole separate thing.
0: <laughs> that was actually that was
2: actually in the paper where they like kept demanding.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Can you show us the light skinned ones with black hair?
0: <laughs>
1: but anyway, <laughs> do they have hairless bodies and really nice boobs? Yeah. It was it was faces, okay, it was faces. I mean, I'm not. But anyway, didn't say any of this.
2: Yeah, my yeah, my only point in in when saying that though is like, you know, we know what that is. We know that there's like objective aesthetic values there, and yes, like you know, fashions change for like bigger women versus smaller, and you know, certain hairstyles. But like a face is a face, mm-hmm. like symmetry. Yes, and like regularity and women like large eyes, like these things are are pretty universal of humans as a whole. Saying that now is very for evolutionary reasons. Yes, yes, and saying that though is controversial now. You know, like so, I wrote an article uh, uh, for National Review where I kind of implied some of these things, and people started denouncing me as like a fascist uh, on Science Twitter because they're like, like, "Yeah, well, I mean." You know, um,
1: <laughs> you got all the yeah. traits.
2: <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I, do, I, I, do, I, do, I do speak an Indo-Aryan language, but I, I've
1: I've listened to your podcast. That's a different Aryan. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so you know what I'm talking You're about. You're literally trolling people in real time. Yeah, <laughs> I can't help it. It's the Kali Yuga. So wait, so I, I want to go back to something you just said a minute ago because it's interesting to me that the same people that are utterly reliant on theory and their use of selected statistics that will immediately switch over to lived experience when their statistics don't say what they want them to well because all they
2: care about is winning the argument well that's, yeah no i'm agreeing that's, yeah. all, that's all yeah it's all that matters but isn't like,
1: it but it is utterly incredible to me that like you find the statistics and if someone challenges the statistics well enough then they're like oh well you know I, it's my experience and it's these other people's experience like you have never talked to women like well what are you talking about Yeah. Well, I mean, did you just explain to them that you're actually a woman? Uh, I have not tried that one yet. But uh, there's time. All right. So let me read the last sentence of your uh, article and or the last paragraph, I should say. And then we'll talk about that. And and then maybe we'll shoot the shit. And then I'll let you get out of here because it's uh, It's 2.39 Pacific time. Um, so okay, earlier generations feared a nuclear holocaust. The atomic age was an ever present reminder of nature's menace. Between 1990 and 2020, an American generation has matured for whom the only threats were man made or unimaginably distant. COVID 19 dispenses with our sophistry and low information navel gazing. The question for our society now is whether we're ready to dispense with them too. So I think that that is a great summation of the piece and a great context to think about where we're at right now. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a real threat. So now what do you feel like the proper response is?
2: Well, I mean – And so, by the way,
1: I'm not like – you don't have to qualify statements. I'm just asking for your, sure, sure. your I think layman's one the, opinion. Well, well, layman's opinion is like we need to have a
2: new elite. Uh transform our elite, Um, you know, people, the masters of rhetoric need to also give ground to like just the masters of the real world, Uh right? So right now, you know, there are engineers, there are scientists, and all they care about in terms of public service, public policy is to get the money for their research and they'll be left alone. They can't keep doing that. You know, kind of the withdrawal and the passivity of people that are in scientific in STEM fields when it comes to these political arguments where they just go along with the activists and the humanities and, you know, other, other softer fields like that has, has caused huge problems. Um, they need to speak up. I mean, I know people in the sciences who are like, yeah, these humanities things are crazy, but they're busy doing their research. Sure. They can't be bothered. You know, they don't want to be like someone like Jerry Coyne or do you know Jerry Coyne? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, I mean, he's, he's very he's vocal an evolutionary theorist. He's an evolutionary biologist right at University okay. of Chicago, yeah. and he's retired. And he's always been vocal. Someone like him, like he devotes a lot of times to debunking kind of this like pseudoscience type stuff. or what was that, that blog you know, he had? Does he still do that? Yeah, he did. Why evolution is true? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, so he's still doing stuff like that. But I mean, most people don't want to do that because they'll get attacked, and especially if they're white males, they're just you know behind. They're already behind, you know. If they're if, if you're a white male. You have to say yes. You have to be an ally. You have to show solidarity, or you know you're going to get denounced.
1: Just like the allyship thing, man. Like, that's one of the things that sends me through the roof. There's so many words now that are euphemisms. For other things, yes. one, one that I hate, and you can tell me if you're on board with this, but is uh, communities like when they talk about how certain communities, communities of color think this or certain communities yeah. think that? It's not necessarily always of color, but well, yeah, I mean, I guess that every time they say, well, it, there it is, the, is there color. is the gay community too. Sure, yeah, yeah okay, fair. the queer yeah, community, exactly, exactly, and the so LGBTQIAA plus. Yeah, exactly. So what they're doing is is um, like collectivizing this group and then. Um, like purporting to to speak for this entire group yeah, like as if yeah. the group had a monolithic feeling and i i don't think that there's anything more paternalistic and even racist than assuming to speak for an entire quote-unquote community sure especially it's when you're well. making the point that they all think the same thing yeah. by virtue of their color like i don't yeah. understand how we deal with that
2: yeah, I mean, so it's collectivism, and it is, you know, it is kind of like a romantic throwback to the sort of like corporate group identities that used right, to be sure. popular. It's basically anti-liberal, right? The left has turned against liberalism, because liberalism is like, you look at the individual. Of course. Individual, but that, that's not what they think. So, I mean, Ayana Presley, she famously said, you know, she wants brown people, but who also have brown voices. So, basically, there's one way. Right. That non-white people should talk, you know, and um, you know, obviously, as a non-white person, I find that like pretty patronizing. Yeah. Because I feel, I feel like, I feel like with white people, for example, even if some white people are problematic, people understand that white people have their own views.
1: It's not like. What is the white view? By the way, I think problematic <laughs> is another euphemism. Yeah. Nobody knows what way that means. It's just calling someone racist without actually saying yeah. it. Like, yeah. if you want to make the claim, make the fucking claim.
2: Yeah, yeah just say, say what you mean and exactly. mean what you say. Yeah. That, that's all. So um, I think, uh, yeah, this sort of collectivism is a big thing. It's a problem. I don't know where it's going to go. Um, the dangerous thing. So I was talking to a friend of mine. He's a Latino. Um but anyway, he's 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 more on the right. He's closeted because he's in science. But we were talking, <laughs> we we were talking, and he's just like, bro, like, you know, we we're just talking. And it's like we don't really want white people. We don't really want white people to be educated and think about race all the time, because that's just not good. No. <laughs> not good if not not good if you're not white in this country, because these these idiots in social justice don't understand that. You know, the, the the basically castrated whites that they're around. It's like there's a group of people where like, they're, they're the people and they get points off that somehow within their system. But that's not most people. Like most people, when you say stuff like this, they're going to get defensive. They're going to get angry and they're going to be like, OK, they're against me. Yeah. So I'm against them. Who's, who's with me and who's against them? I was like, this stuff is going to sort out in very, very pernicious ways if you allow it to continue. Like, we got here as a country through, you know, liberalism and individuality. Oh. Like, the, the reason the civil rights movement had moral credibility was it made universal claims, not particular claims. I love that you're like, saying this
1: right now. Please, yeah.
2: Yeah. It's not like Martin Luther King did not say, like, what is good for black people. He said, what is good for people? Mm-hmm. You know, or like you know that movie, um, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Sidney Poitier says, like, like t- to his father, "You think of yourself as a black man, and I think of myself as a man." That was the liberal progressive view in the nineteen sixties, right? Yeah. And today, that wouldn't hold because you know your race—that's who you are. Apparently, you know, like you don't don't deny that because you know race is like everything now. You know, it, it's one of the things. I mean. Sex, sex, and gender, sexuality is a big deal too, sure. and 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 all these identities, and it's fine. I don't, re- but the issue is like I think of it. I personally view it a lot like religion. Like mm-hmm. I grew up with a lot of conservative Protestants, and they had to talk about Jesus to me all the time, and I'm like, I get it's your thing. I don't believe in any of that. Yeah. Okay. Just like just keep it to yourself after the first time. Like I understand it's part of your religion that you need to tell me about it, but just keep it to yourself. And so when it comes to like race and gender and sexuality, again, like. I don't think people should be hurt. I don't think they should be discriminated against, et cetera, et cetera. Of course. Ultimately, there is a private life and a public life, and I don't. It's not my job to validate your identity. Your identity is your thing, Mm -hmm. right? It's not like, not my thing. It's your thing. It's like it's like my friends who are Christian or Muslim or whatever. It's like you can believe whatever the hell you want to believe. I don't believe in your God. Okay, I'm gonna say, God damn it, because. It's
1: just a saying, and I'm not. It's not offensive to me. It's yeah.
2: offensive to you. But and that's if you want to be
1: mad at me, then I don't need to be scolded. You can decide that you don't like me because I say "God damn it." But yeah. I don't need to now conform to what you think to yes. win your approval because yeah. I am not doing anything immoral by saying "God damn it." No, because
2: you have your own values. You have <laughs> yeah. your own perspective, own individual viewpoints. And, you know, you don't exist to validate other people. So, you know, there, there is there is such a thing as being polite and all that stuff. But a lot of, of, of times that's, that's, that's yeah, weaponized yeah. in exactly. a way where they basically want to silence you, you know, because they can scream at you, but you can't scream at them. It's so, funny how
1: that works out, isn't it? But they're laughing. Well, it's funny because they are you can't simultaneously claim that you are powerless and oppressed and then also have the power to make sure no one else can say anything. Yeah. That doesn't make sense. Um, Let me ask you this. So, uh, you know, I've obviously listened to a few podcasts by this point, but having a more worldly perspective than the average American and being from quote unquote South Asia, (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's an inside joke yes, there, exactly. because yeah, that was in one of his podcasts you can hear it and then you'll understand um, but uh, so people from your part of the world actually out earn uh, white Americans on the same scale that you know we yeah. talk about with sure. the you know hourly wages whatever wage gap thing Asians out earn white Americans that's just a fact right so yeah In the con, I I want you to to describe your personal experience in that context, and Mm -hmm. the context where um, the popular media in America assumes that you are that if you are a quote unquote person of color from another country, then you probably agree with them, and that is, I feel like more often than not, untrue. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of conservatives that are immigrants of color.
2: Yeah. So um, it's weird because we're simultaneously erased Mm -hmm. and we're also like a cultural um, stereotype or we're kind of of like a motif out there. Like in Silicon Valley, there's a Pakistani, you know, whatever, you know, the Asian American programmer, um, these, you know, Andrew Yang made a lot of jokes about it. They're there, right? Like, sure. People know. Yeah. But they're also a race. like. So if you read um, articles in the New York Times, it's a routine thing where they talk about minorities and they leave Asians out. Like, they don't exist. Like, we don't exist. Well, Harvard you know? does that, too. Yes. Well, that's because we have bad personalities.
0: <laughs> you know? Just like,
2: we're not, we're not men of good character. It's weird to me because, I mean, like, so, like, what percentage of the world's population do you think live in Asia, excluding the Middle East?
1: Um, 25 percent,
2: okay, it's 55 and it's always been like that, so it's really weird. I was when doing bad both people...
1: regardless. I was thinking it was like two billion out of seven. Well, so China's one point one 1.4, 1. 4, right? Yeah, India's
2: 1.3, and then you add you add you add Bangladesh and Pakistan, that's like 1.6 in South Asia, right there, so that's three billion. And then ASEAN, Southeast Asia, has like another 650 million, and so it's. Uh, Bro, you
1: guys fuck a lot over there, huh? I
2: mean, there was a phase, you know. There's 120 million <laughs> Japanese. There's like 90 million people in the Korean Peninsula, or the 100 million. So, yeah, I mean, there's a, a lot, lot of, you know, of people. I mean, like, look, we pack we we pack a lot of people into those villages and into those valleys. No, but um, so it's it's weird when we're ignored because again it's american myopia selective ignoring yeah it's selectively ignoring like you know we're not ignored when we're not um when, when we're needful for some narrative but we exist to further the narrative their narrative for both sides you know? by the way yeah yeah that's fair i mean we're we're a bit we're a bit players we're not agents and sure, that's sure, what sure. i object to um, we are agents you know and we're we will be more and more agents in the world. Um, that's what 2020 is all about. The world is coming to us, and we have to wake up and look mm-hmm. around and see what's playing in the world. There are one million Chinese in Africa. They have a naval base in the country of Djibouti, near Ethiopia. Okay, there was a, there was a there was a period last year when there were more Chinese warships in the Mediterranean than French warships. Um, this is, this is the world we live in. <clears throat> yeah, right. The world we live in is not. The world of European colonialism, that is, that is an ancient world of the days of yore, but there are whole departments in universities called post-colonial studies that study that. Even though China is colonizing its own West internally, um, it's sending a million people into Africa, it is buying ports all over the world. Right. What is that except for colonialism? We have colonialism in our time with the most populous nation in the world, the second largest economy in the world, the biggest exporter
1: in the world. But we're still talking about Belgium's colony in the Congo. It's interesting, too, because when we get taught history, I mean, I can only speak from my experience, I Assume and I have read that it has gotten worse since then but you know there's a limited amount of world history that you get in a high school education and then you get a limited amount of American history in that high school education and I feel like and I could be wrong but. Gaging the cultural conversation, I feel like the amount of history we're getting is not only slanting now more towards just American history, but it's slanting more towards modern American history Mm -hmm. where, you know, like the entire history of the world started at the Civil Rights Act or started at the Civil War. You got it. You it. You got it. And now we have no conception whatsoever of the fact that foreign wars are something that can still happen. Mm-hmm. That like do the, happen. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I, and, and this is one of the things that I, I wrote in, in that article is that, you know, we, we imagine that these six packs of socks that are two ninety nine on the wall at Target, like, got here by teleport and not by ship you know like that there are still trade routes across the sea like we think of it as like oh oh trade means like when we used to to send a boat for spices or teas or luxurious silks you know and the idea that these things just pop up in the stores in America yeah. and we can pick them off the walls Like doesn't mean that they were actually created in a potentially sweatshop in China and then shipped here on a boat that is guarded that where the shipping routes are guarded by navies. Yeah. That refuse to kill each other based on agreements that are not set in any stone. Yeah. They're just Agreements that are constantly in flux and haven't happened to change for a while. Yep. But those agreements are all in flux right now.
2: Yep, yep. So I think one of the things that I, that I do want to like emphasize that I believe is our whole world economy is this complex system with no central planner. And that's a feature, that's capitalism. Right. You know, the invisible hand of the market. Sure. The, the problem is when that happens, nobody actually knows what's going on. And so some of the supply chain shocks and changes, it's like nobody anticipated them because nobody has the whole supply chain in their mind. Mm -hmm. They only have their own little part. And so nobody actually understood what the vulnerabilities were. You know, it's like when you when you write computer code, a lot of times there's a lot of bugs in there, and the bugs are just discovered over time Mm -hmm. um, because no human being can integrate all of that together and see how everything interrelates. It's just too complex, and I don't know what the solution for that is. But it seems like we could figure out ways to make it more modular and more robust by not, you know, putting it together as one dependent whole. I want to tie this
1: back into what we just talking about a little bit ago and it's like a pet theory of mine and you can tell me if this makes sense or not. But some of that kind of feels like theoretical thinking versus like real world experience thinking, right? So the programmers can know all the theory about programming and know exactly what they're aiming for and write the perfect code with the best intentions and it still not work completely right because there was something off about the theory. And so then when it's tested in the real world, somebody will discover bugs in it and then you can trace it back to where the theory went wrong. And the cool thing is programming has an end goal. So if it doesn't work, then they have to fix it until it does work, which means they test it on the real world and they alter the theory the entire time until the theory conforms to the real world. Yeah, they iterate. Yeah, and the way we think about these problems is totally disconnected from that. Like yep. the problems are just the way we say they are, or they're the way that the other team says they are. Yeah. And we're sure that that they're the way we say they are. Well, I mean, so here's the, a lot of people, COVID-19,
2: this like huge, Taleb would say it's a white swan that it was going to happen. But right. in any case, this huge shock to the system, they haven't changed their view on anything, mm-hmm. on literally anything. Nothing. So what does that say about how they come to their views? That is it informed by the real world? Like this isn't no. as real as it gets for us, and it hasn't changed a lot of people's views on anything. I can tell you what has changed my views. Like I'm a lot less libertarian than I was even three or four months ago. That's interesting. I think we're I think we're facing a great depression. I think we are too, and we got to figure it out because, um, like, I'm doing okay right now, but like. There's a lot of people out there, paycheck to paycheck. Um, you I, know, I'm not making
1: a dime during this whole period. Well, like my brother, my brother-in-law is like, for example, he, um, he, he's a business person, mm-hmm. okay, and he's
2: he, he's good. He's got 30 employees. He has 30 employees. Um, I'm, I'm not going to tell you what the business is, but sure. it's a service it you know, service a service sector business. Um, the state shut him down basically, and um, he's probably not going to have that business in the near future. Um, He's going to have to rebuild his own life. These 30 people are going to have to look for jobs. These are real people with real lives. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, um, sometimes I'm reading my Twitter feed and everyone's talking about Tiger King or whatever, and I'm like, dude, you don't know what's going on in the real world, guys. If you're at home um, making sourdough and watching Tiger King, Mm -hmm. um, there's bartenders, there's servers out there, there's all sorts of people who have been just, like, kicked out of the world as they know it and they don't know when it's ever going to come back so i'm you know like the free market and capitalism and all this stuff that's for times of like stability and normality and Mm -hmm. i don't we're not there i don't know what we're going to do but i'm much more open to any solution but um i'm scared that these cannibals are going to come and they're going to come from my toilet paper you know what i'm saying (laughs) they might because like people are scrounging around for 12 to- people are like i'm having friends sending me like snapchat photos of like the tp that they found at the supermarket <laughs> you yeah. so, know like they. going like, to be proud discuss- about something these days well i mean it's achievement unlocked yeah it's achievement unlocked you know and so um <laughs> I'm, think- I'm thinking about like what was wrong in my model of the world and like mm-hmm. what i would say that i changed and i'm definitely not a marxist or a class warrior but um You know, there's a lot of struggling people in this country that are struggling because of choices that were made on high. I I agree with those choices, at least temporarily. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, if we're all in it together, like, there was an, you know, so they're they're, they're flying to their, like, extra house in the country. Well, most people can't do that. Sure. Most people can't do that. And, um... Anyway, I think we need to think about inequality and how the society is organized. Now, I'm not saying being a communist, communism is bad. Like, we know it's bad. We've tried uh-huh. that experiment. But, um, we need to, like, think hard about these problems that are new. Like, we're going to have unemployment rates of, like, 20% in two weeks.
1: I think we're, I think, yeah, I think we're getting real close.
2: Yeah. I mean, we're all, I mean, I think it's 17 we're on the is are last I heard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is worse. This is, like, Great Depression territory. It is. Now, Great Depression happened. We have tools. We know in theory, you know. But what we need to do is we need to get our shit together. We need to execute. Um, stop bickering. Stop arguing about things. Um, take China seriously as a rival. Yes. Um, I think I was definitely someone who was pro engagement, and I wanted to think the best, and I still think the best of the Chinese people. Of course. You know, it's
1: cliche, but it's totally true. Yeah. yeah, yeah but, but well, I, they're just people who are trying to have a nice day.
2: Yeah. But the Communist Party of China runs a state that has a very malevolent influence on the world right now, and we need to get woke to it, you know? I think America's been asleep, and while we've been asleep, they've been arranging things to their benefit.
1: Yeah, again, man, I mean, it's so easy to think about, like, looking back on, like, Napoleon, like, oh, that's what a world conqueror looks like. Yeah, yeah. You know? Like, yeah. Okay. Well, maybe a world conqueror looks like what China's doing right now.
2: Yeah, and I don't think it's it's with tanks. It's more like with economics and influence. You know. Yeah. And like
1: we don't. But all and, that matters. You know what I mean. Ultimately, it does. If you can, well, I mean- and that's <laughs> racistly, Sun Tzu, man. If you can win the battle without fighting it, then you don't fight the battle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is this is like in the ancient days now, but remember the NBA?
2: And LeBron <laughs> did, they were like
1: kissing China's, just yes, kissing China's butt, you know? Man. It's because money. Well, money. I wrote in the same thing. Like for the last 15 years, all these superhero movies we watched, every one of those was checked through by the Chinese to make sure that it was going to be saleable in their country. Because otherwise, we can't afford to make it. Yeah. That's fucking crazy. S- speaking of Chinese racism, though, like Black
2: Panther was not very successful in China. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Do you know why? I don't. Every main character was black. <laughs> like literally, like the, the theater, the the reviews, like people were saying. Oh, like, I know. They're just too dark skinned, you know? That's, fucking, that's what they were yeah. saying. I mean, they, they have different tastes, different preferences. Anyway. Yes. I mean, and it, it's fine. China can do its own thing, but it can't impose its thing on us.
1: And the funny thing is, I, you know, we are choosing to impose their thing on ourselves We're because we want it. to open our, our, ourselves up to all the money they can give us. Money,
2: yeah. I mean, there's a lot of like billionaire, like Bloomberg, the capital class. They thought China was going to make them even richer, and that's true. You know, it Until could make them like richer. This happens. Well, I mean, I think we're going to have, like, a revisiting on the whole America and, like, what the interests of our American... You know, Apple Computer was, like, mm-hmm. outsourced so much stuff to China. That's how they goosed up their profits. I mean, the temp- like, China's market is so tempting. It's been tempting for centuries to Europeans, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, that's not a surprise. But at the end of the day, what country do they live in? They live in America. What's their citizenship? They're American, so... Um, they need to take care of our interests first, you know, America first, right? Um, <laughs> again, I understand that that's a triggering term and it's been co-opted, but sure. um, we got people here that are struggling in this country right now yeah. in like a way that's like terrifying. It's it's like
1: riots, food riots territory. Oh, I think we're, I definitely think we're close to that. I mean, the there has been a very, very minor amount of civil unrest in Uh, michigan i believe and the idea that that's not coming to the rest of the country if we continue to do this is just i i can't buy that for a second yeah the entire time i've only thought there is a very very limited amount of time that we can play this game for before we will have actual violence in the streets yeah like how desperate do you have to intentionally make people Yeah. Yeah. Because we're doing it now. We are performing a test like I I, I mean, I sound like I I feel like I was just about to sound like Donald Trump, like being like like the world has never seen. Yeah. Yeah. But maybe it is.
2: Yeah. Yeah. We live in revolutionary times and I'm not really happy to say that. Yeah. I'm not either, man. You know, it's like we, we got we got to make the best of it. But sometimes difficult times can make you. So I feel this is I mean, I think I'll end with this. It's like Because I'm trying to write a piece right now for National Mm -hmm. Review that kind of reflects this. It's like in this difficult time, um, our normal concerns about like, oh, should I get like the new iPhone, Mm -hmm. or should I just like go another year with my current? (laughs) You know, these are things that people would stress about. Yeah, and now we're just like worried about our parents, you know. Um, like like real stuff. Like death, you know, death clarifies. Like I had a, um, a friend of mine in academia and he was like retweeting some of my stuff. And I'm like, bro, you know, I'm like kind of like a little bit of a thought criminal there. You're retweeting it. All the SJWs going to come at me. So I asked, I told him, yeah, I told him like, you know, I told him like the SJWs might come for you, you know, if, if, if you retweet me. Yeah. And he's just like, I don't fucking care. Good for him. He's just like, because it, it's like, you know, mortality makes it clear to you what is important so what's important like your family um your your community um just you know being with your kids like these sorts of things are so important and not having those those possibilities like if you could die or you know your parents like their health their wellness um you know all of these things are so important and yeah money's important but you know we've been chasing it and it's ridiculous and we we watch I, i don't watch tv but like i hear all this stuff about like the kardashians and all this stuff and i'm just like I understand, like, whatever, it's all for fun, but it's silly at the end of the day. Man, right? I don't think
1: it's all for fun, man. I think that people are really, really addicted to watching other people's lives and imagining that, imagining that their lives are just about to be that good. Yeah. And, it's just like, and they also me, think that that life is good. I wouldn't yeah. want to be Kim Kardashian in any fucking world. Sure. Like, I, I mean, don't
2: care how many vacations you can give me. Yeah, what is the, what, you know, like, but that's the issue. Like, we don't even talk about stuff like that. What It's like after 9 11, George W. Bush said, go shop.
1: But that was actually a helpful thing for you the economy. Yeah. For the well,
2: economy. It was good. It was yes. good. Consumption is good. But the issue was, is, like, what is normalcy for us? Yeah. For us, normalcy is going to the mall. Yeah. You know? And I, I'm, I'm okay with that. But I'm just trying to say it's like, you know, like, I'm not, you know, I'm atheist, whatever. Like, but it's just like, yeah, me too. there used to be, like, value that yeah. we had like religious values or something like that. So what is the value now? Like like what are we all about? Are we just all about like each man for himself, each person for
1: himself? And I think and that's I think a confusing is- part of atheism now because, you know, like as an atheist, I have no problem um, pointing to the downside of God not being a part of culture anymore. At yeah. least not in the same way. Like, I yeah. understand that there are elements of community and interdependence that we might lose by giving up religion. Now, the long term goal is to replace those with certain things in the social contract that actually make sense to everybody on a rational basis apart from religion. But until we reach that point, we're potentially giving away something that is not, that wasn't easily won. Yeah yeah social capital so
2: yeah i mean these sorts of shocks give us i mean give us an opportunity to pivot that's that's what i'm hoping yeah, for I'm that, hoping that's for the optimistic the thing, take man. that is the, the other op- the other yeah. option is like hungry cannibals are outside that option might be here too
1: <laughs> you have two direct, yeah, like two doors like pick one you right? might have to, we might have to walk through both we might have to walk through the bad door before we get to the good door <laughs> all right man all right man thank you so much for doing this uh, Razib Khan Uh, people can follow you at Razib Khan on Twitter yes for sure yes okay it's just that though right or go to my website Razib razib Razib.com okay and you've got GNXP GNXP GNXP.com genetic expression BrownPondits.com and Brown Pondits on the .com and on the uh, podcast and then Insights is the other one right yeah the Insights we got it all All right, Razib Khan, thank you so much, man. This was awesome. I hope we get to do this again. For sure. Great talking to you. All right, brother. Have a good night. All right, Bye-bye. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and give it a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts so new listeners can take your word for it. You can follow the show on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at I'm Your Moderator. If you have feedback, you can email heymoderator at imyourmoderator.com or use the hashtag heymoderator on Twitter. and bit shoot. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your The merch site is CancelCouture.com or Go Direct, shop.spreadshirt.com, slash cancel couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko fi.com, slash I'm Your Moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes